You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to talk about my favorite animal today with Dr. Denise Herzing. She is the founder and research director of the Wild Dolphin Project. How are you doing? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, obviously you love dolphins too. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So how did this get started, um, this, this work of yours, some 35 years ago? Yes, well... <laughs> <laughs> I guess the long story is um, I was, I guess, a nerdy teenager, and I used to page through the Encyclopedia Britannica when we had books, <laughs> and I always used to stop at the whale and dolphin page, and I'd always go, what is going on in the minds of these social mammals in the water? Like, we didn't know, right? And, you know, the primate work with Jane Goodall was going on, and uh, gorillas with Fossey and elephants with Cynthia Moss. And I was like, I wonder if anybody's doing this with these animals in the ocean. I mean, it's a little different, right? Sure. And uh, sort of at that time, Jacques Cousteau came on the scene on TV. And I was I grew up in Minnesota. I was going to say, so, where were you? Were you so, even by the, by the ocean now? No, okay. I mean, rivers and lakes. And I was like, oh, I want to be there underwater. So uh, I got certified in a a quarry after the ice broke and then I drove to Florida <laughs> to go diving in Florida. Anyway, so I was that I was lucky because I think I knew that was my passion early on. And I like school, you know, I was a bit of a nerd that way. So <laughs> um, I ended up uh, driving to the West Coast to Oregon studying marine biology and got some experience with marine mammalogy, but always focused on I want to find somewhere in the world where I could watch these guys underwater long term and uh that's how the vision started and i just pursued you know the academic direction and then um found a place in the bahamas where you could see them underwater and... yeah so that's what's i think really uh unique and was groundbreaking i guess about the about your approach um so where you're you know you're not at one of these aquariums where you're studying dolphins you're actually observing them in the wild so could you explain that Sure. Well, I mean, like many uh, scientists, I got my experience working in a captive marine park uh, to start, but I really was like, this is not natural. I want to see what they're doing in their own world. Um, so I, um, I basically hooked up with the ecotourism group to start to get out there just to see, is this a study site that could work long term? And I remember getting out there going, why is anybody out here working? Because you could see the animals underwater. They, you know, were interested in humans. They weren't all that tolerant necessarily, but I figured we could get them, habituate them a little bit to us. And uh, I don't know, over the years, basically found a boat and a situation to go out there on my own. And the approach I used, I mean, I was lucky, but that was my goal was to find a place where I could see them underwater. Mm. Um, because I wanted to really know how they communicated. And you can't, honestly do that from just even surface observations in the wild because they breathe air yes but they're underwater fighting and feeding and you know mating and all that stuff um so i kind of i kind of took an approach that um other mammologists had used in the wild i basically planted myself in one place for some years and just let them get comfortable with us in their environment it's a pretty remote area so there weren't a lot of boats there wasn't a lot of 
other traffic. There was no reason to be there except for these dolphins, really. And uh, over the years, they got used to us. They'd come by the boat. We'd jump in the water. We'd start taking pictures to do photo identification. We'd start sexing them. But we were really careful about trying to learn their etiquette. So in, in some ways, it was kind of like an anthropological approach. Hmm. Try to observe, be there. And if they want to open up and show you their world, you're there. Okay. So that's that was kind of the big framework. You know, and then, I, of course, I had technology. I had underwater video cameras with sound underwater, a microphone called a hydrophone. So I really wanted to correlate behavior and sound and really just was out there every summer for five months and tracking the same group of dolphins because they're resident in this area. For the I was going to ask, I was going to ask that. Is it a, it's a, a same, the same pod or is it larger than a pod or? It's the same community. It's about a hundred animals historically okay. every season. You know, so you lose some and you gain some through birth and death. Right. Sure. And uh, they're resident because they have food on the shallow sand banks where we work, and then it's close to a deep water edge, so they have fish and squid. So it's a pretty nice life for a dolphin, actually. Yeah. Now, remembering there's 30 species of dolphin, and some are mobile, some are resident. So I'm speaking specifically with Atlantic spotted dolphins that I work okay. with. Yeah, yeah I, a lot of people, um, Atlantic bottlenose is kind of like what, the the quintessential uh, you know, one that everyone sees when they in their mind, right? right. Um, but you look at you go to your website and look at the pictures, and you know, these are really it's really distinct that that spotted pattern on there. Very interesting. Yeah, and I was lucky because actually the species get spots as they age, and oh. so another aspect that I hadn't planned on really, but it's been really great in the sense of interpreting their behavior is that you can look at a dolphin you've never seen before, and you can estimate how old they are by their degree of spotting. So it gave us a lot of information about developmental phases, you know, and if new animals came into our area, we'd go, well, that's a juvenile. He's probably about five years old. So it helped us place them in the societal kind of context. Okay. Yeah. And what, what do you think, um, what have you been able to really learn from this immersive, you know, approach, being in the wild, observing them that way, um, that you don't think other approaches allow people to to discover or to gain knowledge about? Well, certainly just watching them underwater, number one, right? So <clears throat> uh, because they have a, a bottom, a sandy bottom, they do a lot of things on the bottom. They dig for fish, they rest, they play with each other. Um, again, it's just purely that we can see underwater. So we can see the details of their behavior. You know, for example, if you're in a place where the water's murky and, you know, many researchers have that situation. That's just the reality of the water, or it's dangerous to be in the water for a human. Um, so they might watch from the surface and say you see a dolphin leaping and jumping. Well, you might think they're playing because, you know, we're exposed to marine parks and that's what we mm. see when they're playing. <laughs> but in fact, they're probably fighting underwater when they're jumping. They're going down and squabbling. So it's kind of a reality check of what we think they're doing versus what we really see them doing. Uh-huh. And it really allows us to really get the data. I mean, the data you can't get anywhere else. You know, what sound is correlated with what behavior or an individual. I mean, there are some ways of getting some of that from the surface, but it involves pretty technical arrays of hydrophones and that. But still, what are they doing? You have to see it, right? So yeah. that's the big difference. So I think the, the language of dolphins, how they communicate, has always kind of been a real... 
uh, mystery, right? It's been something that people are are really fascinated by. Um, how what are they what are they saying to each other? What's their language? Um, how do, how do they use this to communicate? Um, what has science learned? What have you learned? Where are we on the spectrum of understanding what what dolphins are saying to each other? Oh, I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we know a fair amount about uh, types of communication signals they use. We don't really know if they have a language. That's kind of a funny term that we don't we try not to throw around too much. Okay, because we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, but, you know, it's they're great acousticians, right? So they have a world full of sounds. So we know they make different types of sounds. They make whistles, which are kind of long-distance communicative signals. They make clicks, which is their sonar, like a, a mm. Navy sonar. And they make a sound called burst pulse sounds, which are kind of packets of clicks. And those are very social, close proximity sounds. So they use different combinations of these types of sounds when they're doing different behaviors. So we have a general sense of what correlates with what. Um, but one of the things uh, our group has been doing, and certainly other groups now, is we're taking our data and we're throwing it into machine learning programs, mm. AI, right? Yeah. Because it's a good way to data mine a lot of uh, large data sets. And we're letting the computer try to cluster sound types and maybe take a, a look that the human brain can't quite do, right? We're looking for smallest sound units, we're looking to see if they reorder these little sound units because essentially that's what human phonemes are, right? And that's how you have the power of languages. You can say sun and fun and bun, and the last part of that word is the same, but the, it's all different with depending on the first letter. Um, so we don't know if they have uh, a language. We don't know if they have a human type language, but we do know, do know from great experimental work that they are capable of understanding human-created languages, mm. whether they're gestural kind of sign language or acoustic language. So we know they have this great cognitive flexibility. Um, mm. It doesn't necessarily mean they have that in their own communication system, but we know they can handle it. Whether they use it and it evolved that way, we don't know. Um, but it's an exciting time because we have this really cool technology we honestly haven't had access to before all these toys I've wanted for 30 <laughs> years I finally have the toys yay <laughs> um and the power of our work is that once we sort of analyze these streams of sound because that's where we suspect a lot of their complexity is because they don't have you know arms and legs and they probably don't use gestural communication um as much as uh primates for example um, but we do have underwater behavior to look at. So once we look at these streams of sounds and see if there are any patterns or order to it, we might be able to go back and correlate it with activities or certain individuals. So really, you know, it's a long haul, <laughs> but they're cool tools. And I imagine we're going to apply them to other species as well. Yeah. So I, I don't know if this is the, a, a proper question or if I'm getting lost in the rhetoric here, but there's a difference between uh, animals verbally expressing themselves, doing something that's some form of communication amongst themselves and an actual language. Does that question make sense? Well, yeah. So language has certain definitions by human standards, right? Mm. So all animals communicate. And, and in some sense, they're all intelligent in their own environment, right? Um, but there are qualities of higher level thinking. Um, 
for example, we think about problem solving, abstract thinking, tool use. And a lot of these concepts, we know a lot of animals can do now, you know, birds, primates, elephants, kind of the last pinnacle there for a human measure is language Mm. because language is powerful. It allows you, and some of the criteria for it is it allows you to talk out of time. You can talk about what you did yesterday. You can plan. And, you know, we think this was really critical for a human evolution, like get with the troops, plan an expedition to go hunt the mammoth, you know, whatever. So this is like the last human bastion that, that animals haven't, uh, you know, measured up to yet. So, and it's a little bit of a philosophical challenge, you know, we want to feel unique as a species. Uh, So we kind of hang on to this thing. And uh, some people will say, even some scientists will say, well, we haven't really, um, we really don't think animals have language. That's just the way it is. They make sounds when they fight and forage and that's it. But my view is we haven't had the tools to look at it. Uh-huh. So that's kind of a little mystery, and it's kind of the last point. That what if you know dolphins plan to go to the reef two weeks ahead or meet at a point? You know that would be pretty amazing, and it it's something be. we don't think non-human animals do. There's there's anecdotes and speculation on you know we've had things happen where it looks like boy they would have probably had to plan that <laughs> like. And there's some experimental work that shows maybe they talk about things they do in a show beforehand. So it's a tricky subject Ah. on a lot of levels. So we just, we need the science, we need the data, and we need to look at it carefully once and for all, you know, I think. You just said there's some looking at this show beforehand. So maybe they're doing some communicating, making a plan of some kinds, and then boom, they go and and execute it, huh? Do we, do you think, do people think that, this this search for animals having language um, that possibly dolphins are the ones that do, or is there some suggestion that they could be toward the top tier of animals? Or um, it just it just seems there's like this yeah. fascination on that particular thing with dolphins. Yeah, well, there there's been a lot of uh, some people would call it mythologies uh-huh. around dolphins and of course they're smart so of course they have to be communicating and psychic with stuff okay um so that's kind of a a following and um there was (laughs) a scientist named john Lilly who kind of sold that decades ago he was a bit of a visionary though he just what he didn't do was the science and the data and he kind of got into drugs and blah 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 so he didn't do the work yeah Uh, but the concept so the idea is that dolphins are social mammals very parallel to terrestrial social mammals like primates. Um, They have complex societies. Um, When we think this pushes animals to communicate, right? Because you have groups, you have relationships, you have friendships, you have enemies, you have politics. So this is one thing (laughs) that probably drives... No, not that, not that. (laughs) Who's who's running for dolphin president? I don't know. I don't think they have presidents, but... um, so, So that's why scientists are interested because they have big brains they have the physical structure that looks like their brains are pretty complex they have the social structure that would potentially drive complex communication and they kind of have this mysterious world of water and sound medium that we know can be uh, manipulated to create a lot of different kinds of sounds long distance and close so we suspect that, that might be where some of the complexity lies, as well as other animals, not just dolphins, but the water medium is a little mysterious. 
Yeah. So, and we see dolphins doing intelligent things, you know, smart things, both in marine parks and in the wild. So why wouldn't they have complex communication, you know? Sure. Um, on their intelligence, uh, you know, I think I might have heard some of the mythology or, or uh, stories out there about their level of intelligence, um, things about parts of their brain uh, being evolved uh, as much as humans or that were evolved before humans evolved that cere cerebral cortex or something like that. Um, before I continue embarrassing myself and trying to spit <laughs> this stuff out, what what am I getting at here? What are the what are the myths or the realities that I might have heard about about their brains and their intelligence and this, you know, even are they self-aware? Are there is there a consciousness factor sure, that right. other animals might not have? Right. Well, so uh, dolphins have been evolved at their current level for about 25 million years. So they've had a lot of years to use those complex brains. Right. Yeah. And they're um, we, we look at things like uh, brain to body ratio as one measure of intelligence. So how big a brain you need for the size of your body and on that level dolphins are just under humans okay. and they're greater than the great apes now that being said uh, birds do not have very large brains relative to their body because you know they're flying so there's all these different physical things that um complicate the matter and we know birds now at least uh, many types of birds do pretty smart things so physical measures one thing um, then we have the behavioral measures, the experiments we do in marine parks. Um, we know they can solve problems. We know they can think abstractly and understand. Uh, so, yeah, they've had brains for a long time. And again, an animal is, in, as, is as intelligent as it needs to be. Mm. Right. Mm. So they've had a lot of time to be smart about the ocean and, and their societies. So that's one reason. But, you know, we've got sharks that have been around for millions of years also. Um, but again, because mammals are often in social structures, we think that's part of the big drive for intelligence. Hmm. I mean, birds, right? They're very social. They maybe need to, you know, plant seeds or acorns in places like, you know, some other animals do. So it's, it's a constant debate. I mean, the word's not in. And we maybe we need to start thinking about different types of intelligence. Oh. For example, an octopus is very intelligent. It can use tools, but it's a very lone creature. So it might not have a social type of intelligence because it doesn't interact with its own kind very often. Um, so we tend to start thinking about that too. Um, but we do experiments. For example, um, self-awareness has been measured in primates by putting them in front of a mirror. And then you know, before that, uh, they're asleep and you put a mark on their face and, and you see if they're looking in the mirror going, oh, that's, they know it's them. Ah. And they're going, what's this mark on my face, for example? Huh. Yeah. Instead of like, it's another chimp, I'm going to fight you, ah, right? So we've done that with dolphins and dolphins seem to, you know, you put some zinc oxide on them and they tend to look at where you put it like, oh, what's that? You know, and they twirl around. Um, so that's one measure we use for self-awareness. Huh. Now, but then you get into the problem like, okay, well, primates are visual creatures. Dolphins are acoustic creatures. So is that even the best test mm. for self-awareness with an acoustic creature? So, you know, as scientists, we have these arguments all the time, you know, like it's, if, if a, an animal doesn't show something that you're testing them for, is it because they can't do it? Or is it because your method is 
flawed based on their sensory system. I mean, these are things we really need to think about what's sure. appropriate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm curious about their social structure. Um, yeah. Just could you explain how they, how they operate as a, as a community? Um, sure. You know, you hear about dolphin pods and you'll encounter them in different sizes or they split up into smaller groups and, um, you know, how, how, what's their social structure? What's a typical dolphin community like? Sure. Well, um, so again, remembering there's over 30 species, so they can all be a little different. Okay. Um, a, a typical coastal species, so these are animals that are kind of used to shallow water or coastlines, are a little uh, different than oceanic species. These are animals mm. that live in deep water. They never come across coasts for the most part. So they would live in larger groups, like in the thousands, potentially. Wow. Okay. There's coastal animals. The group, the group I work with, even though they're in a remote offshore area, the Bahamas is very shallow, far away from land. So they tend to be more coastal-like. So, for example, our group, you know, it's about 100 individuals. Um, they, the, the term we use for uh, these kind of coastal species are fission fusion, meaning they can kind of be in their group, but then they some leave, some come back, so they're a little flexible. But the typical structure we really see is um, uh, mothers and calf groups, and they reproduce about every uh, three years. So the calf will stay with the mother for that long, and then they'll grow up and move into juvenile little sub-teenage gangs. We call them <laughs> little troublemakers. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they're still kind of in the same area, so they go back and, you know, see their mom or their uh, siblings. Then as they all grow up, uh, at about age 10, the females get sexually mature they can get pregnant and so once they start having their first calf they'll go hang out with other mothers with calves or in a nursery group for example mm. um, now the the males are interesting um, they tend to form these really tight bonds in their teenage gangs mm. we call them alliances or coalitions um, and they are lifelong friends and they kind of roam around. They have a little bigger home range, probably spreading their genes around a little bit and mixing it up. And uh, But they can be the uh, protectors of the mother calf groups. When they're traveling, you often see them all together and you'll see the males on the periphery probably defending against sharks. Mm -hmm. um, so they come and go. Our typical group size, for example, would be seven or eight animals. Okay. And sometimes we might see 20 together. Uh, we've seen up to 60 or 70 at the same time during big courtship periods, that sort of thing. Um, so they're flexible. They tend to, because uh, these guys are residents, so the group I work with, mm. um, they're in that same area, we think, most of the year round. Now, the same species I work with, Atlantic spotted, if you go to the Azores, across the Atlantic Ocean, you're going to find they don't have as many spots because they live in deep water. They probably have a little different social structure. Um, we have spotted dolphins along the coast of Florida where I live, and they go. it looks like they go up and down the coast. They aren't resident in an area. They probably follow fish schools. So animals have to eat. That's probably their priority for being in an area like humans, right? You yeah. Go out for lunch. Um, so, again, they're all different, but they're all uh, similar in some ways if they're resident or mobile, I think. Okay. Um yeah, it's always it's always fascinating to me that dolphin shark uh, dynamic, um, and you know, 
how capable dolphins are of fending off sharks. I think it probably depends on the shark species and just the situation. And they probably can fare pretty well sometimes. Other times, obviously not. But there's a lot more interplay between dolphins and sharks than than people might think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm glad you said it depends on things because there's also a myth about dolphins and sharks. Like dolphins can just fight off sharks and everything's fine. <laughs> so like what we've seen is um, dolphins with small calves, if there's a, a dangerous shark in the area, they will clump together really tightly. They'll drop to the bottom and they'll you know protect their undersides probably. Mm-hmm. And they'll leave. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have males around or sometimes juvenile groups, They'll also form tight groups, and they'll chase the shark away. They'll buzz them and chase them. Um, and sometimes I think they know the shark's not actually hungry. Mm. I mean, we've been in the water sometimes doing our dolphin work, and all of a sudden there's a big tiger shark there, and we're like, should we get out of the water? <laughs> and it's like, well, the dolphins aren't going anywhere. Maybe they, huh? you know. So we, we take our cues from them if we're in the water with sharks. On the other hand, sharks go after the vulnerable, the weak, and the sick, right? So. Sure. Um, you've got a mother and a calf and the calf is not very experienced in the larger world, right? So that calf can take off a little and go get in trouble. That's why they have rules and discipline and boundaries and sharks often trailing those groups. And he might pick off a little calf that doesn't pay attention to his mom. Let every little guy be aware. That's right. That's <laughs> There's a right. reason to listen to your mom. Right? <laughs> so these are the social rules they learn over time. And mm. some of them probably don't learn it and they get eaten. Um, and we see shark bites. We see bites out of flukes and fins, and I mean, so ones you don't see that are probably the fatal ones, right? So, mm, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a I'm a surfer, and I don't worry about sharks. But whenever I see dolphins out, um, I, I feel like a little better for some reason. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, there's dolphins out here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are stories of protection for yeah uh, sharks for people. Are those are there legitimate stories? I think sometimes they are. I think also dolphins um, have their own priorities. Mm. Mm. I, I, I jumped in the water once and I didn't know there was a big shark around and there were a couple dolphins and they just took off. And I'm like, where are my friends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, right. They're yeah, so I mean, themselves. You know, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you you do this, uh, you're a scientist, you do this incredible research, your, your team does where you're in the water with dolphins. Um, what What's the general etiquette, a protocol, the proper way for humans that aren't scientists to interact with dolphins. I mean, it's something people, uh, a lot of people like to do is, is swim with wild dolphins, right? What's, what should people do and not do in that regard? Well, honestly, I don't, I mean, we do our work <laughs> in the wild. We work really hard at appropriate etiquette knowing their signals that they use with each other, if they're um, in a feisty mood or they don't want us in the water. Um, Honestly, I don't really recommend jumping in the water with wild dolphins. You know, Mm. most wild dolphins probably don't want you there. Mm. You know, again, our situation is so unique and I think it gets misinterpreted sometimes. Um, You know, we know these guys, it's a species that has some, a fair amount of playtime. So they're kind of special in that regards, but most wild dolphins are probably just busy hunting food. And I mean, countries have uh, pretty strict regulations often 
Um, like in the United States, it's actually not legal to jump in with wild dolphins. Mm, okay. If you're in the water, like you're surfing or you're diving and they approach you, you know, you can't do anything. But yeah, we have pretty strict rules about that. Like even for us to work off the coast of Florida, we have a research permit that allows us, and we don't even work in the water off Florida. That's only in the Bahamas because we have a permit for that. And so in Florida, we can just take surface photos with our, our permit. That's about it and get a little closer. Um now, that being said, many countries don't have regulations. Um, it is an issue. People, they want to connect with dolphins. Um, my suggestion, um, if you find yourself in that situation, is to, first of all, be respectful, like you should be with any wild animal, right? Mm -hmm. It's their home, not yours. You probably don't know what's going on. <laughs> you might think you do. You know, like, you know, we can have situations where someone's in the water and, and we have public involved in our work to a certain extent. And they might think the dolphin is interested in them and they're like interested in this fish behind the person. <laughs> you know, but yeah. people want to be connected with these animals. So it's going to be a little bit of an illusion. But first of all, you should be respectful. You should not touch them. You know, there's a lot of grabbing that's going on with wildlife and selfies and all that crap and it's hurting animals and it causes stress and it shouldn't be about you mm. it should be about respecting the animal observing them whether that's on land or in the water uh, give them space don't touch them don't grab them don't you know assume a lot of that sure just be grateful that a manta ray swims by you or a turtle you shouldn't ride them i mean these are yeah. things that that we you know we can think about because we see this in marine parks and you see video but let's be clear, you know, the world's big. There's a lot of species and we should be more respectful in those situations. Yeah, it makes absolute sense. Um, I, I uh, lived in Hawaii for about five years. And so there's a lot of spinner dolphins there, which are so cool. Um, right. <clears throat> and I did a lot of free diving also. So I didn't go and, you know, chase them around. But I had a lot of different encounters where there were small groups swimming around and you know i just would go under and watch and that was awesome um one time is uh, i was i don't know 10 or 15 feet underwater ver uh, vertical like this and one of them came up vertical like that as well you know 10 feet in front of me i turned myself this way and just started swimming like that and the dolphin <laughs> mir mirrored that and that was like i luckily i had eyewitnesses on the surface and stuff it was it was so cool um well, this is why we think they want to connect because they, i mean they do this in their own group right imitation mimicry is a way to connect show you're aware of that other being for example i mean they do this all the time in their own communication and this is why people feel this connection mm. i think it's partly going wow this this wild animal's aware of me they're mimicking me yeah, it's like, where do you go from there? So. They want to play. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I wanted to ask about a couple of the, I guess, uh, tougher things. You know, we've got uh, overfishing of our oceans. We've got climate change. We've got plastic pollution. Um, not happy topics, but I'm just wondering, you know, what you're seeing out there and how those things are impacting, you know, dolphin population, dolphin health, maybe um, overfishing first right like we're just taking all the food supply out of the ocean what's how what's going on with dolphins yeah fishing of course uh probably a similar impact is just the nets you know oh. dolphins get caught in nets they drown they're they're considered bycatch in certain areas or there's ghost nets drifting around um the other honestly the other biggest impact is uh dolphins and whales eating plastic plastic mm. bags 
those plastic bags you get at the grocery store, you should be taking cloth bags, you know, take renewable or reusable bags. Um, Cause there's a lot of plastic in the ocean and it to an animal, it often looks like squid. And nine times out of 10, when an animal washes up on the beach, you cut their stomach open and it's full of plastic bags. Mm, so mm. big, big, big issue. Um, now climate change is a global issue. And I can tell you very specifically what's happening in our area. Sure. Um, so it's a fairly remote, it's always been fairly pristine, you know, we think area. And um, in 2013, we went out during our field season, which is in the summer, and half of our dolphins were missing. And you're like, uh oh, <laughs> like, wow, what happened? Did orcas come through? Did they get hurt by Navy sonar? I mean, you just don't know. Or, you know, one net could kill half our dolphins easily. Right? Wow. So a month later, we luckily found them 100 miles away in a second study site. And it was great. They were all there. They were looking healthy. So it's like, but what are you doing? <laughs> you've been resident for 28 years in this one spot every summer, and now you've moved. So after we started documenting that for a few years, we started looking at oceanographic data. And what it looked like happened is right in the place where they lived, the, uh, and this is from satellite imagery, the chlorophyll crashed, which is... Um, uh, basically predicts plankton or their food source, right? And then fish. So their whole mm. food system crashed. Um, so they probably had to move to find fish in another area. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is in a remote, pristine part of the world where they really have fairly minimum impact from fishing and even pollution to a certain extent. And here we go. Some probably global dynamic caused this chlorophyll uh, crash, which we don't really know why, honestly, probably nutrients or, mm -hmm. uh, and it caused a major shift in our dolphins. They moved to an area where there was another group of dolphins resident. So they've been having to work that out, you know, like, <laughs> you know, they're like the, the guys that moved in and now they're competing for food with this group. So we've been monitoring that. And this is happening all over the world. You know, you get um, sea level rise and all of a sudden you've got Maybe dolphins that lived in the ocean are kind of maybe moving into river systems and, and just in now they're encountering each other where they didn't before. Yeah. So you've got hybridization potentially happening between uh. dolphin species. You've got, of course, competition for food in addition to humans. Now they're competing with each other. So and again, this is, you know, many species on land and water are dealing with these big, big changes of food and temperature and migration. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I just, I know over the past year or so, I've seen a bunch of articles about the ocean temperature and just the incredible uh, spike in the ocean temperatures. We, uh, I live in Wilmington, North Carolina, Wrightsville Beach, and uh, it was a record, it hit 90 degrees at our pier here, like last summer, 90 degrees, you know, in North Carolina is crazy. Yeah. Um, and then I... <clears throat> I've also been seeing some articles about uh, a real influx of dolphins in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I don't know if you saw any of that, but you know they've always kind of visited and popped through there, but they're just really showing up in record numbers. So are they are they chasing food, like you say, or what's going on? They're but probably going for food. You know, the animals have to go where the food is. Another perfect example of that is in the Atlantic. There's a North Atlantic right whale, very endangered species for decades slow reproducer, right? Every two years. Mm. So long a reproduction cycle and their numbers were gradually climbing. And then a couple of years ago, all of a sudden there were these massive deaths, 18 animals, I think, which is big for a population of 300 and you're trying sure. to get the reproduction up. Turns out their food had moved. 
they had moved up into um, Canadian waters where there weren't regulations and there weren't uh, certain fishing uh, restrictions and they got tangled or they starved, whatever. Um, so huge impact. All of a sudden you've been working on this endangered species for decades and, and one change mm. like that. Now, the good news is the Canadian government, they amazingly took quick action, changed these fishing regulations. And the next summer, and the whales had gone up there because now the food was up there. And as far as I know, they haven't had any deaths and they've had reproduction again. So, again, these changes, our governments are going to have to be able to respond quickly mm. with changes. And, and this is a problem. You know, people yeah. don't think we can do it in the U.S. very easy, but Canada did it. I thought that was impressive. And sure. good for them, you know, and it made a huge difference to react that quickly. So we have some abilities to help this process if we know what's going on. Yeah. Um, lastly, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, you mentioned plastic pollution and all that type of thing. But what are some other ways that people out there can help support research and conservation of, of dolphins? Sure. Well, I mean, you can always give to groups that do research like us. You know, that's you know, we're a nonprofit. There are many groups uh, like us who work in different parts of uh, the, our country as well as globally. So you can support that work all around. Uh, policy is really important to support. Laws. You know, you need to demand that these laws help animals and don't don't hurt them. And again, it's the personal effect, right? Reusable bags. You know. Get rid of your plastic if you can in your life. You know, don't use one one use plastic items for the most part. Mm -hmm. uh, be conscientious about the environment. Go on beach cleanups. You know, these all, these things all help for all animals. So, and it's our environment too. You know, if you want to be selfish about it, you know, do it for us. You know, as we want to survive too. But this stuff yeah. is in our environment, and it makes it hard for creatures. And um, just on the on the policy front, I meant to ask you that. So that seismic blasting is something that's uh, really harmful to marine mammals, especially ones like dolphins that depend on, again, that acoustic uh, way of navigating and, and communicating, right? Besides well, it, it's a complicated subject. Um, so like in the United States, again, we have pretty good regulations for uh, seismic exploration vessels uh, that are required to have marine mammal observers on board and they monitor who's around when they're putting out sound. So that's the United States and some other countries too. Um, then you get countries that don't have that. They just go blast and then you have these big wash-ups of animals. Mm. Um, we have uh, Navy sonar and there's a certain frequency of sonar that's particularly uh, troublesome for whales and dolphins. Uh, there has been some progress in that, uh, knowing where animals are, same thing, and having the Navy move appropriately and not be blasting in certain areas. But yeah, I mean, it's underwater environment. I mean, I'm a big renewable energy person. I wish we had more solar and wind. And we are, we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, but there's some resistance, of course, in sure. the larger uh, corporate world around that. But I think people, again, you know, people as consumers have a lot of power. And we don't always know that. Mm -hmm. But it's changed, you know, the medical field with alternative medicine. And it can change our environment if we demand certain products because we're the ones that are buying it. I mean, you go to the grocery store, right? And look at all the organic food now. And that, that really was a response to consumer demand. So exactly. yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate the time and the conversation. Uh, I learned a ton and um, yeah. Thank you for all your, your work studying and, and protecting dolphins. Thanks for having me. All right. All right.
You're in the Waterloop.